Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the table at a dance competition? Exactly what are the judges looking for anyway? This is Making the Impact, a dance competition podcast. Each week, we'll cover a different topic related to the world of competitive dance from the perspective of the judges behind the table. It's the question that's on everyone's mind leading up to competition season. What can I do to make sure my routine wins? In this episode, you'll hear from two seasoned dance competition judges about the ingredients that make up a winning routine, from the big picture to the finer details. Hi, y'all. It's Courtney Ortiz, and welcome to this week's episode of Making the Impact. I'm your host, and of course, I am here with my co-host, Leslie Mueller. Hello, listeners. Hello, Courtney. How is everybody doing today? I hope everyone's doing great. I am doing great. I have my sweet little cat, Chico, sitting right here in my lap, joining us for this recording. (laughs) We love an animal friend. Yes. How's life been going over there for you, Leslie, in New Jersey? New Jersey. Well, there's tons of fall festival things going on, and the weather is beautiful, and we're finally getting a little bit of foliage, and there's more trees here than there were in Queens, so it's really nice to- kind of see what fall in suburbia looks like. Uh, so I'm loving it. Yeah, that's great. i happy to be in fall mode as well. I love New York City in the fall. It's like leather jacket season, beanie season. That's my favorite time of year. And I've just, I've definitely been all over the place. I feel like my September that just passed had, was crazier than I expected and like unexpectedly crazy. I traveled to London with RWS Entertainment and also ran some auditions with them in New York City. So it was really cool to uh, travel internationally and see some of the talent overseas in London for some cruise ship opportunities. Really, really fun stuff. I love that I'm able to uh, incorporate that into my career. It's just like a whole new adventure, but I'm loving every second of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's nice to just make the impact around the world um, as you're doing. But yeah, I agree. It's been a very, very weird um like we we thought summer was busy and then all of a sudden we're in the fall and I'm like, where are my weekends? I thought I had weekends. I know. I don't. I just, I'm busy. You're busy. We're all busy. <laughs> I know. And we are still trying to find a time for me to come out over to see your new home in Montclair. <laughs> and it is just truly impossible with our crazy schedules. <laughs> literally, literally impossible. So we'll see. I, I haven't really had many people over anyway, because again, it's scheduling is hard and people live everywhere. But I'm like, oh, I got to have a housewarming party at some point. Yes. And maybe it's going to have to be like individual housewarming parties because yep. I'm not going to be able to schedule anything for everybody to be able to come. So I feel be great. you. <laughs> I feel you. Yes. Well, I'm excited for this week's episode. This is a, a competition style episode that we wanted to put early on in the season as everyone starts prepping and planning a lot of their choreography and continues to tweak and adjust and drill and clean their dances as this the competition season is quickly approaching y'all and we're talking about what makes a winning dance routine today with two spectacular IDA judges as guests but before we jump into this week's episode we want to tell you about some of our sponsors on season 5 of making the impact our sponsor for this week's episode is young arts an organization that has been a part of my life for the past 15 years. Young Arts is an arts organization that supports young artists across 10 different disciplines, including dance. Their national arts competition is open to artists aged 15 through 18 or currently in grades 10 through 12, where selected winners can receive cash scholarships, mentorship from leaders in the industry, a lifetime of professional support, and the prestigious honor of being a Young Arts winner. To all of my dance parents, dance studios, and dancers out there, Don't miss out on this opportunity of a lifetime. 
you only have a few weeks left to get your application in for their 2024 National Arts Competition. The deadline to apply is October 13th, 2023. Learn more about Young Arts and start your application today by clicking the link in our show notes and visiting youngarts.org apply. Want to know the secret behind me getting back into the dance class game? It's all in the feet, baby. Apollo shocks give me the cushioning and support I need to get back into class in comfort and style. Give them a try yourself. Use code IMPACT10 in the promo box at checkout for an exclusive 10% discount. And a heads up, Apollo has a satisfaction guarantee with free returns and exchanges, so you have nothing to lose but everything to gain. Visit their website to learn more and view all of their dance performance sock styles at apollaperformance.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-A performance.com. And our final sponsor for this episode is Dance Device Lab. Have you ever wanted more from feedback from competition judges? What if your dancers could actively rehearse with their adjudicators? Well, they can. With Dance Device Lab's Adjudication Showcase. This unique three-part experience is a student-focused in-studio competition and convention hybrid event. Part 1. Perform your dances. Part 2. Rehearse with Dance Device Lab adjudicators to apply their feedback. Dancers will receive live, written, and interactive feedback. Part 3 is class. We know lasting change is based in the studio. DDL's adjudication showcases educational and interactive approach is innovating the industry. Receive 10% off of your event by using promo code DDLIMPACT10. That's D-D-L-IMPACT10. Visit DanceDeviceLab.com for more information. All right, Dance World, it's time to jump into this week's episode of Making the Impact, and I'm so excited for this one. We're talking about competitive dances today, those winning routines that you see steal that first place overall slot at competitions throughout the season. We're going to talk all about what makes a winning routine and why that dance got first, maybe over your dance, or maybe you were the first place winner last season and you're hoping to continue to be the first place winner into the 2024 season. We're going to share all of our tips and tricks, things we've loved that we've seen on stage, things that we may not have loved that we've seen on stage from some veteran judges who are joining us. IDA judges are in the house and two brand new guests to our podcast, which I am so excited about. The very first guest that I would like to welcome has been on the roster for many, many years. I've had the pleasure of meeting her in person up in Maine once or twice before. I'm excited to welcome Andrea Tracy to our podcast. Welcome, Andrea. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes. So happy to finally have you on the podcast. I feel like it's been a long time waiting. Yeah, excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I know you've done your fair share of judging through the years and you're always booked. Yeah. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Booked in blessed. Love it. (laughs) Well, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about you, where you currently reside, where you grew up, any career credits, and what you're currently working on. Well, as you said, I'm from Maine. That's actually where I grew up, but I have uh, worked all around the country. I studied in New York at School of American Ballet for a little bit and stuff like that. But I, a couple of my career credits are I represented the United States when I was 14 in Japan in a ballet and modern dance competition. Wow. And I was a professional dancer for ballet and contemporary and modern for 20 years. And then a fun little fact is in the mid 90s, I was in a music video on MTV and VH1. 
I would have. I wish that I was in a music video on MTV. I watch TRL every day. <laughs> yeah, I need to. I have to go into like the depths of my records and and find it and post it because it's quite a trip to watch. It's pretty please funny. do. I need to see it. <laughs> yeah, and then currently I am a mother of two, and I teach at a local dance school here, choreographing, teaching, and then judging and all of that. So that's my main focus right now. Amazing. And the season is going to sneak up on us sooner, like as soon as possible, I'm sure. It's already October, but it's going to be here before we know it. So I'm sure that you're ready to hit the ground running judging all season long. Yes, I'm super excited for this season. Amazing. Well, we're grateful to have you here today on this chat. Thanks for joining us. All right. And our next very special guest is joining us from New York City. He is a Broadway veteran. I've had the opportunity to even watch him perform in musicals, and he is so talented. I'm excited to welcome IDA judge Jody Renard to the podcast. Welcome, Jody. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Finally. Yeah. Finally. I know. <laughs> Listen, we gotta save some people. We can't we can't just like shove everybody into season one. <laughs> <laughs> and we have so many amazing judges on the podcast to, to be on the podcast, but also on our roster that sometimes it's just a matter of waiting for that perfect episode that works with your schedule, works with our schedule, and is something that you're passionate that you want to talk about. And here we are today with two brand new guests. So I'm so happy that you're finally here joining us. And I know that when you're not in a musical or on Broadway, you're probably judging a dance competition. (laughs) That is very true. (laughs) Very, very true. So Jody, if you wouldn't mind sharing with the world a little bit more about you. Sure. I came into dance late. I went to a performing arts high school and I switched to a dance major in my senior year. I helped to form a dance ensemble in my college. It was called Wings because we took flight. (laughs) And from there, I moved to New York City and I've been blessed and booked ever since. Six Broadway Mm -hmm. shows and counting, five national tours. What shows are you able to share? I can share the shows. I made my Broadway debut from an open call with the late great Anne Ranking seeing me and I went into Fosse. And then I started my Broadway disco career with Saturday Night Fever. I did Taboo, which is the Boy George musical. And then Legally Blonde. Everyone loves the pink. And Legally Blonde, (laughs) I was fortunate enough to be in the closing company of that. And then I went on to do Summer, the Donna Summer musical. And then a little melancholy with Broadway almost made my Broadway play debut in Thoughts of a Colored Man, technically still cast in the show, even though I never hit the stage. Oh, so wow. there are my six. You, you know, what's really cool about hearing all the shows that you've done is that they've spanned throughout many different decades, even with Fosse. I mean, what year was that when you did Fosse? That was 1999. Wow. Yes. And then you were in Donna Summer, which was like a few like a minute years ago. ago. It was 2018. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, you've had a 20 year career on Broadway. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and what a way counting. to like, yeah, exactly. And still <laughs> counting. And what an amazing show to kick off with Fosse. I mean, was that just a dream? It was unbelievable. I had seen their out of town trial in Boston. So the fact that it was less than six months, and I was on stage with a lot of those people, it just kind of blew my mind. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, and did you have a chance to see Danson on Broadway? That I was... unfortunately did not see Danson. Oh, it was wow. like, I just started teaching at AMDA. 
So it was working with my schedule there because a lot of their later semester students, their classes are at night. So it was hard to kind of juggle. And then I I got so exhausted. It takes a lot to teach, as I'm sure we all can relate to. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's a different vibe teaching college students, too. Oh, yes. Different kind of exhaustion. (laughs) Yeah, and various levels, too. They're dance majors, and then they have what's called the integrated program. So Mm. that's... Uh, music theater students. So some of them have never had mm. any dance training at all. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's like back to basics with these with these dancers Indeed. who are Indeed. like probably amazing singers and actors and they need to get a little bit of dancing under their belt so they can be prepared for, you know, whatever's thrown at them when they book Broadway. Exactly. Got it. Well, what a perfect person to learn that from with you as such a seasoned veteran. And also, like you said, starting dance a little bit later, I'm sure that you could very much relate to those students, you know, looking back. Oh, absolutely. Because I was like, was baptized with fire. I got thrown into an advanced ballet class and I didn't know what a tombe pas de bourree was. I was just like, oh, the feet just kind of go and keep the heels forward <laughs> I mean, yeah, so. Amazing. Yeah. I love that. Well, congrats on all your beautiful Broadway success and, and into the future as well. I'm sure you'll be back on Broadway any day now. But Thank you so much. <laughs> you're so welcome. Over here in IDA World, we're happy to have you as one of our judges. And you are out and about all season long judging dance competitions, which I think is something I want to get to, Leslie, is the mm-hmm. fact that Jody didn't really grow up in the competition mm-hmm. scene. And Andrea, did you grow up in the competition scene? I did partially. Actually, I was doing a lot of performances even when I was still in junior high and high school, um, but at the professional level, more ballets and contemporary stuff. But we did competition maybe once or twice a year, but it was not the main focus. And I had teachers that, you know, were competition teachers, but I also had, as I was saying, Russian teachers um, earlier when we were chatting that their main focus was, you know, training for the professional ballet world. So I kind of had my foot in both, you know, pools or whatever. And um, so I feel like that's interesting when I'm look when I'm judging now, because I look at routines kind of from both sides, you know. So, yeah. So I didn't grow up like hardcore competing. But just, you know, a little bit. I had to find that balance between the serious training and focusing on routines. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's a great sort of segue, Courtney, into this conversation. Because when we're thinking about a winning routine, yes, it's a very general sort of topic. But it's coming, like, depending on where you are, the perspective of who is awarding you this winning prize is important to consider. Because if you've got a judge, if you've got a panel of judges of Jody's, who have Broadway experience, didn't grow up competing, you know, teach at the collegiate level. I know, Jody, you teach children as well. But your perspective on what is going to make a winning routine is going to be different than possibly Andrea's, who comes from a little bit more of a ballet background, maybe a little less competition, you know, and from a different part of the country. Like, so I think that's something important for everyone who's listening to to think about is, you know, it, it is all subjective. And it has to do a lot with the people behind the table, which is why here at IDA, plug for IDA, we try to put, you know, qualified, background checked, you know, people with different but valuable perspectives behind the table. So you're not just getting Joe Schmo who did like a kickball change once and is now a dance competition judge. <laughs> yeah, I think the diversity behind the table is super important. Yeah, 100%. And especially like even 
you know, on, on Jody's end. And I know even at, for me, and I'm sure all of us can relate, but like when I started doing musical theater, I started mm-hmm. to understand stories completely different. I, mm. I feel like the intention behind what I do as a dancer has completely shifted my view of dance. Whenever I do a piece, whenever I watch a dance, whenever I judge a dance entirely, if I didn't have that musical theater experience and performing in shows that like everything means something, like it's like driving the story. I didn't think about that when I was a competition dancer. No one talked about storyline and intention. We just made sure our technique was good, made sure our execution was great and we would win. And now I think it's gotten bigger than that for a lot of people. And again, like you said, the diversity of who's sitting behind that table I think especially a lot of like musical theater based judges expect there to be a thorough. It doesn't always have to have a story, but I think that the dancers need to understand what they're dancing about. Right. Indeed. I would say it's less about a story because as you get into more contemporary pieces and even for some lyrical pieces, the story isn't the main focus per se. For me, it's about the connection and the intention of movement throughout the piece. Because I see a lot of times a dancer will start and they'll get to a movement or a skill that they really enjoy and their face will be connected to it and they'll light up and then they will drop all of their countenance before they're going to the next movement. So I Mm -hmm. think musical theater has helped, I know, in my personal experience to just carry it throughout to know that the piece starts as soon as you enter the stage and it doesn't end until you are out of the judge's view or out of the audience's view. Mm-hmm. And I think it yeah, starts I- beforehand, actually. Mentally? I think, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, and especially with anything like storytelling wise, something happened before you c- came on stage. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. was the impetus for me to come out here and do this dance. Yeah, you have to get in the character or the mood or whatever it is before. And I've always said, and I say this in my critiques a lot, is I don't always need to fully understand what the story is or whatever, but I need to understand when I'm watching that you all understand that mm-hmm. you are all on the same mental wavelength and focus so that I understand that we're all on the same, we all have the same vision, the same. Mm-hmm. So some people, you know, they give lots of emotion or I can tell they have a story. And in that same piece, someone else isn't giving that same emotion oh, yes. or clarity. And so for me, I just want everyone to be on the same understanding of what the piece is. What is the focus? Because as Jody was saying, in contemporary and modern dance, and especially in the professional world, there is a lot of times not a spelled out story. It's more just an intention, a vibe, a focus. So as long as that is cohesive amongst all the dancers, then I think that's a strong starting point. Yeah. Oh, I love that, guys. But I feel like that a lot of times, like like you said, it's an, it might not be spelled out for you. But I do feel like that it might need to be more than it is currently mm-hmm. to Agreed. the dancers because right. they're training dancers that don't understand how to like dig deep and find emotion without it being given to them or told to them. So I think that I personally can tell that those types of conversations about intention mm-hmm. or story aren't happening in the choreography rehearsals Absolutely. and they need to be. And the Absolutely. dances that are winning are very, very clear right. with right. Everyone's on the same page. We know what the story is. Like, I might not, I might not know, like you said, Andrea, I might not know what the story is, but you know what the story is and good for you for talking about that. Good for you for like 
approaching it with the right intention across the board because there's always going to be somebody in the back that I'm looking at and I can tell if you're Mm -hmm. not giving the same. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be led by one person downstage center. Everyone collectively in the group has to be on the same page. And that Mm -hmm. could be like a make or break moment, honestly, too, when it comes to performance execution and absolutely intention. So that's kind of ingredient number one that we all agree on. Yeah. You have to have some kind of intention that's clear and and not spelled out, but clear enough to the people doing it that we as the audience understand that you know what you're talking about. So that's number one. And sometimes you said not spelled out and I said it too, but I will say there are some storylines where it does really need to be spelled out and especially maybe sometimes in certain musical theater pieces. So it again, it just has to be very clear and everyone on the same wavelength. Yeah. But does the choreographer even have know the intention like that's yeah that's my other question see that can be another problem exactly they don't know why the dance is happening or at least to be able to empower the dancers to do it right and i mean that's a whole nother podcast i think honestly i think you're right (laughs) season six i think it comes down to the choreographer doing their research too you know depending on what the subject matter is Or, you know, again, for musical theater, have we researched what this musical is? Not just this song. Oh, this song sounds great. But what is happening in the musical at this point? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and because that's when I'm looking at, you know, something from Wicked or whatever. I'm looking at it as if it was part of the show. And we're just seeing the excerpt. So it needs to, for me, really stay true to what I Mm -hmm. would see on the stage. Not necessarily the exact choreography, but just the the mood and the vibe and the story. And if you're going to choose to take something like a musical theater piece out of context, you better do it so far out of context Mm -hmm. that I'm like, what is this brand new piece of art? Because like, that's an interesting take on it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it attempted and you can sort of tell like, oh, I know where you were going and it's not landing because you didn't go far enough. Right. So right. like that, that again, like if you can go far enough with something out of the box, that might be a winning routine because you have surprised me. Right. You know, I want to see more of that, actually, because like, could, <laughs> do we really need to see any more uh, Wicked? No. No. Popular. <laughs> no, that was the first one that popped in my head. But you and know, listen, Wicked. I like Wicked. So <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, yes, but it's just overdone, overdone, overdone. I guess that leads to another like tenet of what makes a winning routine is if Mm -hmm. you pick something that's done over and over Mm -hmm. again. I mean, Wicked for musical theater. But I mean, Mm -hmm. how many more dances do we need to see to jar of hearts? I mean, I I don't. (laughs) No. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, and again, that kind of goes back to the choreographer. Have they done the research with intention Mm -hmm. of the piece? But have you done the research to be like, how often is this song done at a competition? 100%. Is this, Uh, absolutely? are you current with what's active in the industry? And I think that's a part of being a smart choreographer. Um, You don't, you know, you don't want to just go to a comp and be like, oh, my God, that song is so cute. I'm going to use it next season, even though it was the song of the season. And now you're doing the song of the season next year when we really don't want to hear it again. You know what I mean? Like you have to be active. And I think that the hard part is, is that a lot of choreographers might be homegrown studio choreographers that don't escape outside of their studio and they might only attend the comps that their studio goes to so then they don't really know what else is going on in the industry besides what they just saw at their competition yes we have social media obviously but like it's no different i don't know it's like a it's a love hate for me because i feel like what happens is that everyone just watches what's at like the award-winning nationals like what wins at nationals on social media 
They yeah. go on the YouTube. They go onto the competitions page. They see what won. They hear the song. And then everyone thinks that's the song we need to use next year. And I'm like, okay, I guess you're sort of doing research. But also, that's not it either. Like, that's not going to automatically mean you're going to win because you use the song that won at XYZ competition. Right. I mean, you mentioned YouTube. I, I go on YouTube, but I go on for a different reason. If I find a song I kind of want to use, I actually go on YouTube and see how many dances are posted with this. Smart. And if it's smart, if it's if it's honestly, mm, I don't even know, even more than five. Nope, I'm moving yeah. on. Or I suggest that if you do want to use a popular song, that your take on it is so different that right. I'm like, whoa, I never looked at this song in this way or thought of that. It, it, if you're going to use a crazy popular song to me it has to be a completely different intention and vibe at this point point. and we're also at a point musically where there's so many different types of covers of a mm. popular song so it's worth researching to find like this off the wall like for something that's very like pop if there's some real slow ballady acoustic version of it that would interest Absolutely. me definitely as an adjudicator yeah, I find myself perking up when that right. kind of stuff comes on. I'm like, whoa, this is an interesting version of this song. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Or, yeah, or a song a I've never heard before because that's more, yeah. again, that's more interesting to me than mm -hmm. the same thing over and over again. And, you know, we have this conversation all the time. Like, there's so much music out there, guys. It's everywhere. There's so much. Like, please give, please give other artists a chance, <laughs> you know, and other, other of their albums a chance. <laughs> Yeah, I was teaching at a studio uh, last week in New Jersey, and one of the teachers was just kind of like observing my class. And I was just teaching jazz class, playing my regular jazz playlist on Spotify that I've spent years curating. Honestly, anytime I hear a song that I'm like, oh, this is a bop, I add it to my jazz playlist. Like, that's just what I do. And the teacher came up to me and they were like, so where do you find all your music? Like, it's just, it's just so fun. And like, where'd you find it? And I was like, I literally have been curating it for years. Like, I don't know why other teachers don't do that. Like, and then she's like, but like, what? I've never even heard some of these songs. And I'm like, if you find that's an artist point. you love. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, first, that's the point. Second, like, if you find an artist that you love, or if you hear a song at competition, and you're like, oh, I loved this style. I love this artist. I love their voice. Go to Shazam it. Then don't just use that song. Go to the album. Listen to all the other songs. There might be another hit on that album. Listen to their other albums. Like, there's so much more than just that one song that you heard that you think you need to use. Absolutely. Unless you're, like, truly, completely inspired by it and you are going to do something so different like we've talked about. But, like, I think the – what makes judging fun and interesting is, like we've talked about, not being predictable. Giving right. us something that is going to just – make us like fly out of our seats in excitement, in storytelling, in anything that's just not what we would expect. Like we already have an expectation when I look at the program and I see what song you're using. I already have an mm -hmm. idea in my head as to yeah. what you're mm -hmm. about to present. If you Absolutely. completely change it up and blow right. my mind, I'm going to remember that dance. Absolutely. It's not going to mm -hmm. be another Moulin Rouge production. It's going to be you know, something else that's gonna like blow my mind and be like wow oh my god they took this in a completely different way yeah. i mean i don't know how you can really do Milan rouge different but <laughs> well maybe <laughs> yeah. that's, that's another Bad conversation because like Milan rouge children i don't know i know I, right. but <laughs> each year since 1980 young arts has been helping support up-and-coming artists for their future ahead 
Young Arts hosts the National Arts Competition, where artists in over 10 different disciplines can submit to be considered as one of the best in their field. Only 20 dancers are named winners each year, and all genres of dance are accepted into the event, including contemporary, ballet, tap, hip-hop, jazz, world dance, and more. Winners who are high school seniors also have the opportunity to be considered as a U.S. Presidential Scholar in the Arts, one of the nation's highest honors for high school students. As a previous Young Arts winner myself, I encourage all dancers who are looking to pursue a professional career to not miss out on this important opportunity. Applications are now open for their 2024 arts competition. The deadline to apply is by Friday, October 13th, 2023. If you are in grades 10 through 12, head to their website to learn more and apply now before it's too late at youngarts.org apply. Thank you to Young Arts for continuing to support me as one of your alumni and for supporting our podcast. All right, so so ingredient number two is like proper song choice, interesting song choice, interesting theme choice, blow our minds. What about <laughs> so this is this is where people I think are gonna get very sticky. What about execution? Because a winning routine is not full of people who can't do skills, right? True. Right. So are we expecting perfection or <laughs> are we tiptoeing up to the whole trick question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because don't get me wrong, I like for my mind to be blown as I'm sitting behind the table. It's like, let me see something that I'm not expecting from these younger dancers. But I feel like we're in an era where I'll I'll uh, qualify this by saying, in my own humble opinion, I feel like where we, it seems that studios are training to do more tricks than they are for technique. Mm. And again, I'm not trying to be anti-trick, but... If all you can offer, or if it seems that all your dancers can offer is a trick, I've already checked out because I can already see that they're going to go to one point of the stage, do a trick, and then walk almost Mm pedestrian-like to another point of the stage to perform the next trick. So for me- the predictability. The predictability of it. Absolutely. I want to see a trick that comes out of something technical. I want to see, like we've been talking about, connecting to that music, give me that intention, Carry it through. As I say when I'm adjudicating, I need to see that choreographic connective tissue. Mm. Show me mm. a good pot of beret, triplet across that stage. Give me a little tap step, something to get you from one point of the stage to the other and engage us. It's like carry the movement through. Don't give me this fantastic trick and then walk to right. the next point of the stage. Mm-hmm. And usually with the emotional countenance gone as well. And then going into the to the next skill or whatever it is. Yep. I think technique and transitions are definitely come before tricks. And totally. that's kind of what I'm seeing lacking a lot yeah. out there. And as as Jody was saying, you can I can predict what trick is coming or whatever. And I just I want to be caught off guard and not necessarily by tricks, but just by movement quality and transitions. But technique for me is the absolute base. I don't care how many aerials you're doing or back handsprings or whatever. If we're not straightening our legs and pointing our feet and using our core or doing or understanding how to do a true contraction, then I'm, I'm as well checked out, you know? So that's for me kind of the base. I feel like that people will hate me for saying this, but I feel like that 
with the addition to levels at competition, the, that is the excuse to why technique isn't prioritized. Because competition is about winning, essentially. At the end of the day, people want to win. And people think that tricks are what win, not technique. So when they see, so because of that mindset, people focus on the tricks, even though they're not training in technique enough, and then just scale it back as far as, well, we're just going to compete in intermediate. We're just going to compete in beginner because we're really not there yet, technically. That is true. You should be probably focusing on more of your technique. But if you are choosing to be in the beginner level or the intermediate level, I don't need a dance full of tricks. I need a dance full of foundational technique. If you're I mean, choosing if you're those levels, you shouldn't be doing tricks. Right. But exactly. people but people use it as an excuse to say, well, my technique's not up to par with the advanced because they take ballet three days a week and my kid hates ballet and she only wants to take it once for an hour. So they're going to go into the intermediate but oh my gosh their switch arabesque is out of this world their head spring is mind-blowing so they're obviously not a beginner dancer but they're not an advanced dancer but their technique's not really up to par <laughs> like there's always an excuse and it's yeah. like to me and then that also is another part of how the industry has shifted i think in in a bad way because now we're rewarding technique that's not up to par because you're intermediate and that, and to me, that's not really fair either. I mean, I know that you guys, I don't do that. And I know you guys probably don't. So I don't know who is doing that, but I just well, really like rewarding wish the tech. Yeah, rewarding. Well, they, usually you know. what happens in the intermediate in particular is that the dancers that win an intermediate should be in, in advance. So we're right. rewarding well, what, you know, is actually I think, great. I think, Courtney, you, I think I've heard you say this before and we share the same opinion. That intermediate level is the worst. It and is. that's what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish there was like recreational and then whatever, competitive or pre-professional or whatever the two. I just wish there was two categories. Just two. That's all Because we need. people hide in that intermediate level right. when really they should be in advanced yeah. doing the tricks that they're doing. And, and they might not win in advanced. They might not win and that's why they don't do it. That's why. Yeah, I just have, you know, even a different, yes, it's about winning, but it's about improving and personal best and. When I'm judging, I'm judging you to help you improve as a dancer and take that information with you into wherever dance takes you. That's right. I'm trying to help you get further into the next step of competitive dance or pre-professional or whatever it is. I'm not just giving you advice that will that I think will help you win. Right. I mean, yes, it hopefully will, but that's not the main focus for me. And you know? as we've been saying, like adjudication and I mean, just performing arts in general, when you're put in front of a panel, it's subjective. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, if you make a sports analogy with this, it's like all of these athletes are competing to go to the Olympics and everything. They obviously have the skill. They've qualified mm -hmm. to get there and everything. Mm -hmm. But on the day, right. they could totally lose it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're less of an athlete. Right. Absolutely. It just means at that moment in time, they didn't have it, but they still have all of the rudimentary skills to have gotten them there. Mm. And I feel like in competitive dance, we're not stressing that. 
Right. It's like you need to know from Tondu to Tonde Flesh to Alasacan to bring it into Fuentes. Turned out, mind you. Thank you. Still, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we're missing those steps and we're just going to, I'm just going to teach you how to do a turning disc. I'm not going right. to teach you how to get to second right. position. Right. Right. You right. Know? That's where like the folk, that's the focus is that, right. Yeah, you're right. You might have an off day, um, but it's not the end all be all. Right. And I just, the mindset needs to shift a little bit. I yeah. Think. Even like, like with your example, Jody, uh, like with the turning disc, I always teach basics everywhere I go. And I obviously, when I start working with a, a studio as a guest teacher, I don't know their level if they're new to me. So I just kind of get put some feelers out and we just do some technique across the floor. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do two Chane, two PK turns. That, But the dancers are like, all right, I want to do Calypsos. And I'm like, Ugh. Well, you can't do a Calypso until your Shane turn is is clean and beautiful and strong spot, core activated, arms are working. Your Shane's were a hot mess. So how do you think that you can execute a Calypso when you don't even have that first preparation under clear and understood yet? Like we can't be skipping ahead of these foundational skills. And we talk about it all the time. We just did our back to basics episode on the podcast that I hope everyone goes and listens to because it is, we really talk about this in full detail, but I think that when I know for me, like when it comes to a winning routine, I feel like it's a nice combination and blend of, of there's some tricks in there. Sure. Why not? But also I can tell that you have foundational technique and the Absolutely. choreographer was smart enough to show me that. Right. I always am. I'm always excited when I see a pod beret or a triplet yes. step. I'm, it, <laughs> it, it is not like, am it's not. Babyish, babyish to do yeah. <laughs> uh, a pot de bure. A pot right. de bure can be sexy. It can be hot. It can be fire if you do it right. Absolutely. But I like think ballet are like, companies oh, not across hard the world are doing pot de bure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think <laughs> every too jazz company. That it's all how it's done. <laughs> like everybody, I think there's something to be said too for not not like putting tricks in quotes in this one box because there's all kinds of levels of tricks too. So yeah, we're, mm -hmm. we might be teaching a beginner seven to nine-year-old jazz routine, but we can put a tuck jump in there. You could put a coffee grinder in there. Like there's, <laughs> there's leveled <laughs> tricks. You don't have to do the top level trick when you're a beginner, but there's still something mm -hmm. fun and different. And you can be mm -hmm. airborne when you're seven. Like that's what kids love. They want to be up in the air and flying and like, yes, but a Calypso can do that, but so can a tuck jump. And so I think, again, we have to, we talked about this in the Back to Basics episode, we as educators have to be excited about the basics and the basic tricks and the stepping stones to get to these big things. Because if we poo-poo them, even in passing, nobody's going to want to do it. Why would I care about a jazz square if you're not excited about telling me how to do a jazz square? Like, I'm obsessed with a jazz square, just like Courtney's obsessed with a pot -bure. Like, you can make <laughs> a jazz square like everything. I need to do a jazz square. Listen, you got to just get it in palie and then like chasse out of it. And like, yes. it's amazing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like what Courtney was saying, and I've, you know, seen excerpts of her classes is if you're going to do those tricks, as, as you guys were saying, we got to work backwards though and talk about progressions, you know, basic progressions to build up to those. And I can tell in a dance with certain choreography, who's doing those progressions in class and who's not. Right. And that, and that's going to tell me a lot. And it, and it will affect your score. I mean, you can do a Calypso, but is the foundation there to build up to it and the technique? So it's just because you put a trick in doesn't mean it's going to score well. It has to just be executed safely. Yeah. And then going back to those those progressions that you were talking about, 
it's also very evident when the progressions have been done on both sides of the body. Oh, too. I yeah. find that I'm guilty. <laughs> Some people listening to the podcast might recall me as their adjudicator. I will say that right leg is great. What's the left leg look like? Mm-hmm. It's like, that was a great turn on your left leg. Can you turn on the right leg? Mm-hmm. Especially if the choreography is only showcasing the one side. Well, I was just going to say with choreography, and that's another part of a winning routine is interesting and, and sometimes comp- not complex, mm-hmm. but thought out choreography that is not just right side yeah. heavy. And this goes yep. for solos, especially. 100%. I yeah. love to see a soloist come on stage and turn both ways, different yep. kinds yes. of turns, right. but yeah. both ways. So yeah, so I feel like it's hugely important to train those progressions or the bar work or whatever we're doing, both sides. And then in choreography, some of the group le- is leaping across stage left, stage right. So we're showing that complexity in the routine. And so for that, kids really need to be training and teachers need to be teaching both sides. Yeah. And I'm not poo-pooing like a nice, good Batma and everything, but too many times I see, like you were saying, is in a solo, they're just Batmaing the right leg mm-hmm. and they do it like six times. Yep. Yep. 100%. It's like, I know, because I have a more dominant side of my body as well when Everyone I Everyone does, yep. But Same. I'm not trying to just give you that one side over and over and over and over and over again. Even on the collegiate level that I'm teaching now, I see the eyes get really big when I have them reverse a whole combination yep. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and go from the other side of the room. Yep. And I'm like, this is, this is basic to me. Right. Or rudimentary, I should say. Basic has another connotation these days. Mm-hmm. But I think that you have two sides of the body. You have two arms. You have two legs. We should be able to use both. Right. It's not going to be perfect on both sides. Like, you know, when I was still dancing regularly, professionally, like you asked me to do something on the left, it still does not feel great, but I can do it. And it's, it's, I'm proficient at it. So like, you know, you can't stop doing something just because it doesn't feel perfect. Like, you know, you must do it more to make it closer to perfect. Like nobody's going to be perfect, but yeah, Yeah. when I was doing Fosse, like the number crunchy granola suite, Mm -hmm. it's divided the whole number where some people only do things on the right leg. Some people only do things on the left leg. And then there's those few tracks that have to split. Mm. And I was a swing and Fosse and they would tell me, okay, you're on for so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, that's the track where I have to double pay both <laughs> in the same pass. But again, because of my foundation, because of the technique, it's right. like, I was like, it's not going to look as good. Like right. you were saying, Leslie, it just, it's what I have to do right. and I have to pull from that core to be able to but do it. you wouldn't have even been hired for that swing position if you couldn't exactly. do both. Right. And that's Absolutely. the thing that dancers need to realize in the industry is that you're limiting yourself if you're only doing one side 24-7 and even on the choreographer's end challenging the dancers to, sorry, you might not like this left butt mob, but guess what? I'm putting it in here because I want you guys to work on this this season. Absolutely. And this, and I get it for solos. Like even when I go and set guest solos, I always sit down with the dancers and I say, what are your favorite like tricks, skills, favorite sides? Tell me. It's always right, 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 right for everything. And I'm like, so is there, and I literally ask, is there anything on the left that we can showcase? Anything. Like I just want to be able to say as the choreographer that I've done my part to try to give the judges what they want, which is variety in movement and um, showcasing that you are capable of doing more than just the right side. But even when I choreograph, and this is a note for all choreographers, and I would love for us to dive into the choreography aspect of this conversation, 
I am making sure I actually have a checklist of, of things that I'm trying to achieve with this specific dancer that I'm creating on. I do not give them if more than like three legs in the whole dance. If I've seen your side bop mouth once, I don't need to see it again. If I've seen your tilt at the very start and that's your, that's your like feature, that's what you're great at. You have a gorgeous leg line. You want to showcase that tilt. Guess what? I don't need to see it anymore. I can maybe see it once more, but if I've, I've counted on the teacher mic before, I have counted. Okay, that's the seventh leg I saw. Oh, oh hold on. That's the eighth <laughs> leg I saw. Wait. Oh, wow. We're still going. Here's the ninth. It's like, are you kidding me? You never want a judge to be sitting there in their head counting. Like bored of your good thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It goes to knowing how many dances you have in that particular competition. Because if that same dancer mm. is doing that same leg Fair. in the same way in multiple numbers, then once again, I check out as an adjudicator. It's like, I saw that in their solo. I don't need to see it in the group dance. 100%. I don't need to see it in the trio. Yep. It's like, you have to keep track of that. That became very evident to me when we were in COVID times in block schedule. Yeah. I was like, okay. And I, I really hope choreographer, I think some choreographers also kind of woke up during that time when they sat at competition and saw block schedule and they saw, whoa, I'm doing a lot of the same moves or giving yes. the same phrase to this piece, this piece or whatever. And I really hope that we all looked at our choreography and kind of grew from that right. and tried to spice it up and change it up a little bit. But yeah, you're right. When you have the same person or a few people coming out doing the same legs, the same Alyssa Contern sequence in every routine, it loses its power. It really does. In my it opinion. gets predictable again. And that's what we don't want. We don't want it to be predictable. We want to be excited. And I've, I talk about this all the time. And that's a great uh, reference of the block scheduling because and again, like, yes, I think it was an, like a rude awakening for a lot of people when they got to see their dances across the board. But also, like, what do you think when you're at recital? What do you yeah. think when you do your like pre-season company run through? Yeah. I'm like, how do you not realize this then? How have you not realized, oh, this all looks the same? If I'm feeling that as a judge, what are you thinking? You think everything doesn't look the same? I'm confused. Did you really think you went out there with this dance? Because it wasn't different. It was the same thing. The same girls doing the 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 skater turn quad, whatever it is. Same girls doing the aerial over here. It's like, how be different. Like showcase different people. Try to and that's another thing that I try to do even with when I because again, I'm speaking a lot from the fact that I'm not in a studio regularly. I just do a lot of guest work. But even when I go into a guest uh choreography setting with like a soloist, I ask them, What's your other do you have another solo? And they go, yeah, you, you know, I have a lyrical and I'm doing their jazz. They're like, OK, so what skills are in your lyrical? Because I want to make sure that we're not doing all of the same identical skills in your jazz dance. So we show variety. Like, yes, there are there can absolutely be crossover. And yes, there are some dancers who are great at certain things that we want to highlight. But if there's other dancers that are also great, showcase them too. don't make it predictable. Don't make it the same thing every single time, because it almost becomes like one of those formula dances where. We know, oh, here we go. We're going back into that diamond shape formation. <laughs> We're all about to go yes. do, you know, this. Like, you don't want us to feel that way as a judge. It's just thinking outside the box for me, you know, it, it just as we were going back to it, but just how to be different and unpredictable is hugely important to me. And I had a thought back when we were talking about tricks, and I just wanted to reference uh, one time I was judging. And a school came in that was had beautiful technique and their main focus was modern dance. 
and they were up they were up against you know a whole bunch of tricks and all this stuff and that's great but i will tell you we were blown away and they they cleaned house they won everything because it was their technique was incredible and it was a breath of fresh air right. and the choreography and the formations and the movement quality the textures it was incredible and so i want people to understand you don't only need to do this this and this to mm-hmm. have a winning routine right. Right. There's so many different ways to have a winning routine. And with that being said, I think what's in, important about this choreography side of the discussion is, like you just said, there's so many different factors that could go into it. There have been many scenarios where I'll see a beautiful technical studio come out. I mean, they're, they, I can just tell their foundational training is out of this world. Choreography is not that great. Yeah. And then they're yeah. not really going to win just because the choreography it was just subpar. It was just mediocre. Right. And I'm, I, I was like wishing for more. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I yeah. wish there was like more artistry or mm-hmm. like more intention or more storytelling or more transitions, more visuals. Like so many aspects to the choreography creation go into it. And it's not just how great is your technique. But then the, the flip side, there's the, there's the fact that a lot of people think that you have to hire some million dollar guest choreographer to set a piece on your studio. And that's going to mean that you're going to win because you brought in this guest choreographer. It's not about the choreography all the time. Yes, maybe you're do- maybe you're taking the steps to challenge your dancers and expose them to a different style than what you as a choreographer usually offer. But if the execution and the technique doesn't complement that guest choreographer's work, it's still not going to win. It might win a choreography award, but it's not going to win first place because there were other elements of the formula lacking. And the ingredients lacking for that dance. That's the sad part about the way competitions have have changed in recent years is you will likely not hear that critique unless you're listening to a teacher critique. You're not right. going to hear your dancer's technique is so amazing, but this choreography is lacking. Right. And that is why you are not getting a higher score from me. You're not going to hear that because we're not allowed to say that. Right. You know, half the time you cannot comment on the choreography because it's out of the dancer's hands. So... You know, if 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 you as a choreographer are ever in that scenario where like, well, why didn't we win? I didn't hear it. Like all I heard was praise, praise, praise for my dancer's technique. Read between the lines and think about what else we can't say, because if I can't tell you the thing you mm. need to fix, it's now up to you to figure out, well, what what didn't they talk about? Yeah. Oh, it's the choreography, maybe. And then watch it again and say, oh, yeah, that could have been a more interesting transition. Oh, that could have been something different. Because we're, 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 our hands are tied sometimes. And- I know that's a delicate <laughs> subject. You're right. As yeah, an adjudicator, is. that is hard. What you can and can't, I, I try to, I try to say it almost kind of in a nice way. I'm like, right. you know, these kids are so incredible. And I honestly think they're capable right. of more, you know, I try to hint at it without, you know, or I really think we could double time this choreography and change our movement. You know, I try to give suggestions or compliments, but also hint at, the choreography issue, especially if there's nowhere, you know, some, some competitions have it where it's choreography, music, costumes, technique, you know, there's different categories. If I can't do a separate score for uh, choreography, I really try to kind of hint at it in the critiques without, you know, taking it too far. And it's not that we're just dissing choreographers Uh, because I know my choreographic voice is, is very small and I'm very hesitant because I know what has to go into it. It's like, you have to assess the dancers. You have to see what they can do, what they can perfect in the time period, and then be able to carry the intention Mm -hmm. to be unpredictable. Like we're talking about on stage. It's a tall order. (laughs) 
It is. It it's is. very tall order. Especially in three minutes or less. Right. It's Absolutely. Hard. Training dancers. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it's like what we're saying is like trying not to be formulaic and really trying to assess the dancers that you have in front of you. The dancers to be able that to you have in front them. of you. A hundred percent. Those kids, not the kids in your head or the professionals Absolutely. in your head or who you wish you were working with, the kids in front of you. And that's, mm. I love that point, Jody. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like that's, that's what I'm going to be most interested in behind the adjudication table is like, did the choreographer or the teacher take these dancers, keep them in mind and highlight the best of what they can do right? and give them that intention, that unpredictability and just help them create something for that three minutes that they're on stage. It's a tall order, we mm-hmm. know, but still it's like this, you have to have that mindfulness. That's what's going to make a, a winning routine. Hey dancers, if you're looking for that extra edge, let me introduce you to Apollo Shocks. They've got scientific proof to back up their cushioning capabilities, helping you feel more secure and comfortable with every step or leap. And you know me, I wouldn't recommend anything I haven't tried myself. I wear my Apollo Shocks all the time, especially when teaching and dancing at convention. They offer such great arch support and compression for quick post-class recovery, and I highly recommend all dancers having a pair in their dance bag. Use the code IMPACT10 in all caps in the promo box at checkout for 10% off your order of your new pair of Apollo Shock compression dance socks. Plus, they offer free returns and exchanges. Learn more and view all of their sock variations now at apolloperformance.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-A performance.com. And now let's get back to the episode. And like with that, that's partially why I feel that guest choreography isn't always the way to go. Because studios know their dancers best. The teachers who work with their the dancers week after week know their best. They can sh- they should be able to, if you're a smart choreographer, you should be able to choreograph this dance for your dancers to highlight and showcase them in the best of your ability. When a guest choreographer comes in and you think you're we're gonna have a winning routine, the guest choreographer is I've honestly just trying to like figure out your dancers. Exactly. And, and yeah, then the dance sure. might end up being too easy because they have assessed the way that they assessed them might have felt like, oh, well, they're not really where I, th- you know, the technical level where I think. So I'm going to just play it safe and give them a clean dance or they're going to go above and beyond and over their head and it's not going to work for them. And then you're going to have to end up readjusting it or maybe you can't based on the choreographer's requests. Like it's just not always going to work. The only way for me that and. I'm speaking as a guest choreographer, you know, some people might be like, well, oh my God, I've brought you in as a choreographer. Well, guess what? I kind of am getting to a point where I only will work with studios that I've worked with before. Because, yeah, And unless you're at like, to be honest, I'm not trying to sound like elitist when I say this, but like you have to kind of be at a very high level. For me to walk in as an outsider, I need it to be a blank canvas. I need to be able to pick you to do whatever I want you to do to be able to make my vision come up. If I have to cater around all these requests, like I can't do the left, I can't reverse it. I can't do this side of this. It makes my job 10 times harder and then the final product's not gonna work out because I don't know your dancers. It doesn't matter how great my choreography is. Your dancers aren't gonna be shown off to the best of their ability because 
I was limited with what I was able to work with. And that's what's hard for guesting. So I think like in-house choreographers is honestly the way to go for competition. Personally, I think unless you're like extremely beyond advanced and you can handle it. I mean, I'll agree with you 100%. There's certain schools that I really have gotten to learn their kids over the years when they have me in as a guest choreographer. And now it's becoming a little bit easier for me to set work on them because I know Mm -hmm. kind of what their focus is and their training and and what kids and everything. But I always suggest, and when people ask me to set work on them, I like to do a class yep. before. 100%. Or, and I like to be there at least a day or two so that I can really observe and think about go home that night and think about, okay, what are we doing tomorrow for choreography based on what I saw today? Yep. But a class before is really important for me so I can really look at the dancers, kind of look at the collective level all of that, and then have a little bit of time for me to think. And I, I tend to choreograph right on the spot. But in order for me to do that successfully, I need to kind of know what I'm working with. 100%. So for people that have guest choreographers, and that's my recommendation is have them teach a guest class the day before or the morning before or whatever, so that so you smart. can get the best result out of your choreographer. Let's dive into the genre chat of, of yeah. winning dances, because I feel mm-hmm. like that a lot of people think that contemporary is the only way to win a competition these days. Every, every first place dance is a contemporary dance that had beautiful visuals and partnering and movement quality and technique and story and theme and all these things. Is that necessarily true? I don't believe so. Because I, I think so like either. all the little tenets, all the little bullet points that we've been hitting, I think if that's in your dance, the genre is not going to matter. Mm-hmm. If there's that intention, if there's that sense of non-predictability, if it's been choreographed to the dancers that are actually there, there's enough, like I like to say, the choreographic connective tissue, Mm -hmm. then that's going to be the winning routine. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, even if there's an acro piece choreographed that way. Right. If it's I mean, done I'm well. going to be like, look, that took me on that journey. I saw everything I needed to see yep. to make that the winning routine. I think what happens is that if you just look at the program everywhere, there's just more contemporary dances. So ratios and right. math just tell you, <laughs> you know, that like it's probably going to be a contemporary routine because there's so many more of them. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what you're seeing. It's not that contemporary is better or contemporary wins all the time. It's just that there's more of them to choose from, you know, and again. You have to really stand out in another genre because there's fewer of them. So you do, like Jody said, have to have all those bullet points plus be, oh, my God, that jazz routine just like blew me out of the water. might be more memorable because it is in a contemporary dance. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, I guess, like, you know, including all we've been talking about, you've got to know your strengths. Like I, one of the schools I teach at, they are hugely strong in tap and they know that's their strength and they're not afraid to compete with it. You know, if if you know ballet is your strength, then go for it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, we don't see a lot of ballet nope. win, but if it, if a ballet comes out and they've got all the ingredients we've talked about and technique, they're going to do well. Right. You know, so you've got to know your strength. Don't just think, oh, contemporary, you know, has a better chance of winning, which is not true. But, you know, a lot of people think that and then they'll just stick with it because right. they feel it's safe. Uh huh. Go for it and surprise us with what you truly feel like your strength is. Yep. I think that people, especially like before the kids even get involved, the kids might like doing contemporary more right. for whatever reason. 
maybe it's easier to get away with things in contemporary. You know, the technique isn't, can we kind of flex our foot? Yeah, exactly. I meant to have that bent leg. There's always an excuse in contemporary. And it's easier for the kids. And then on the choreographer's end, it's easier for the choreographer because then they can disguise all those technical habits and disguise those flaws and just make like a visually beautiful dance. But I, and I think, like you said, this, the word safe, playing it safe. I think that a lot of people want to take the safe route. And sure, there are contemporary dances that absolutely blow my mind in artistry and create choreography and execution. Yes, yes, yes. But so can a jazz, so can a tap, so can a hip hop, so can an acro, so can any genre of dance, like we've said. So I do think it's important to, and and like I mentioned, it it gets predictable. Again, like if I'm 20 contemporary dances in, in a row, mm. how are you doing something different in that 20 that's going to make it stand out and be the winning routine? And it's the third jar of hearts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in that 20. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it needs to, it really needs to be completely different in, in, Maybe you have a really unique choreographic style and that's what was memorable about it. Or maybe their technique was amazing, but the choreography was generic. Or maybe it was a song that I've never heard in my life. And all I can think about is the fact that this was just a cool song. And right. I remember yeah. it because of that. <laughs> like, you truly yeah. don't know what will, will be that thing that sticks with an audience member or a judge that could make it the winning routine. But I think another important part to think about is, again, subjective again, depends on who's on your panel, but also, again, depends on who shows up that day Correct. at that event. Because like you mentioned, Jody, it's like if you have all the ingredients, any genre could win. But just because you have those ingredients and you might have been the first place overall competition down the street last week, a different studio showed up this week, different set of judges, and now the judges like this tap dance more than your contemporary dance that they just won. premium ingredients, you know, from the gourmet yep. store. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So like, yes, they still have the ingredients like we've talked about. You've done all the work. You've done everything right. But maybe there was something better. Maybe the execution was better. There have been times where I'm like, I'm so excited to find out who's going to win because it was such a close call that I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to go. You know what I mean? Uh, Something else going back that, you know, we talked about, we talked about that collective understanding from the dancers, but also choreographers, I see a lot of disconnect sometimes with the costume choices mm. oh. based on, you know, it doesn't, does that costume fit and work with that choreography and that music? To me, the whole picture yeah. has to make sense and has to complement your dancers, has to complement your choreography, the music, the choreography, the costumes, all of it. I, you know, I've seen very pedestrian-like dancing in certain pieces, but then the costume, I don't know, has ruffles and rhinestones or whatever, and it doesn't make sense. So it all has to really make sense. And for that, you know, for it to win for me, that can be a total package. Yeah, total Total package. package. It's I'm so glad that you brought that up because there have been times where I've been so distracted by a costume that I can't even concentrate on the choreography. Uh, Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out why are these dancers (laughs) wearing this? Yeah. (laughs) You don't want the yeah. judges to ever feel that way. Like that's, I right. think like, like one of the main points to get across in this discussion is that like you want to eliminate all of the questions. Right. I shouldn't yes. be questioning what, what, what skill that was. I shouldn't be questioning why you're wearing that costume. I shouldn't be questioning what is the story. I mean, I guess like sometimes can because if as long as you know what the story is, like we've talked about. Sure. But like, yeah. I don't want that to be the only thing I think about. 
It is so hard as a viewer and as a judge, everyone's like, well, why are you paying so much attention to that? You shouldn't be paying attention to that. You should be critiquing my dances. Right. Well, you you put it there. It's everything I see on the stage. I am judging everything I see. Yes. Everything. Like, I'm sorry, whoever says that. Have you ever tried to turn your brain off of just that one thing that you can't stop thinking about to just plow through and talk about everything else when it you have to so pee hard. and you're hungry and like you're waiting on a job interview <laughs> yeah. to like come through on your phone like no there's and too many things hour right. 15 like. and the rest of the studio is screaming right behind <laughs> with you. the air horn and the cowbell <laughs> i mean and i think it's also important to remind everybody because i know people get up in arms about things we are talking about a what makes a winning routine at a dance competition where you have paid money to be judged We're not Mm -hmm. talking about a nice dance routine that you put together to do at your show, your concert, your performance, your recital, your talent show. There's plenty of good routines out there that don't need to be judged, that didn't get created to be judged. So, like, do those. Those are great. Please, Mm -hmm. 100% do those. But if you are coming to a dance competition, these are the things we're looking for that that are not going to guarantee you to win, but give you a better shot at getting a higher score from the people you have paid money to hear from. (laughs) Yeah. Mike drop Leslie. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> oh my gosh. And and for me too, like at the end of the day, and I know you've had a whole podcast about this, but I also am looking at appropriateness, age appropriateness. Yes. You know, Can't I mean, you that. can come out with the legs high and the straight legs and pointed feet and everything's great. But if the song, the lyrics or some kind of Costume. moves in the routine. I that's a full stop for me, you know, especially yeah. as a dance teacher of children. I have children of my own. That sometimes will be what stops me from getting And I and I've heard you, Andrea. I've that. heard some of your critiques where you where you say it. You say this is not an appropriate yeah. song. This is not an appropriate I'm like, movement. Like, I she's feel like for real. Yeah. She's for real about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean I'll talk to I will in my critique say, Ooh, I feel like we could have edited that part out. Mm-hmm. Or a great question I'll mm-hmm. ask is what is that? What are you saying with that movement? Mm. What are we trying to say with I like that? that? And it's important. And the older I've gotten, the more advocate I've, you know, become for this. Mm-hmm. So if people are asking why, why didn't this win? When you think you have all the other things we've talked about, maybe also look at that and see. It gets you know, if the subject matter really is appropriate tricky. or whatever. Yeah. It gets really tricky for me because we know the general setup of a dance competition. The adjudication table is very near the stage. For me as a male identifying judge, if the costume becomes inappropriate, then it really is difficult to do my job because if I'm dealing with a possible like Janet Jackson (laughs) wardrobe malfunction, like dealing whatever the age group of the dancers, it's like it becomes very uncomfortable and I can't really pay attention. Nope. Goes back to what I'm saying. It's like I'm stuck on the costume. I can't really talk about this when I'm afraid something's going to happen and I don't want to be held accountable for this happening or to be mentioning it, but it's literally right there in front of my face. Feet away. Like, yeah, every male judge I've, yeah, every male identifying judge I've worked with, they've all said the same thing, Jody, as you. And and they, when there is a malfunction, they don't, they're like, should I talk about it? Do I look away? It becomes a very you know, uncomfortable situation, but you want to help the people too and say, yeah. how could have we avoided this or how can we make it better and safer the next time? So those are all things that choreographers and teachers really need to consider. Absolutely. But it goes back to what you said, make sure it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. It, we shouldn't, it sh- there shouldn't even be any potential for that. There should be absolutely, no, we should have 
done all of our homework. We should have done all of the the butt glue, the sewing, the the double-sided tape, the anything possible that you think could prevent this needs to be happening. There are so and I don't I don't care if you had three dance three dances to change. That's not my problem. I don't want you going out on stage exposing yourself to the world. You don't right. want to, the judges don't want to, the audience don't want to, the live stream doesn't want you to. You have <laughs> to do everything in your power to prevent that. And if that means the costume maybe doesn't fit this dancer, maybe we got to go with another costume. We got to go with another costume, y'all. You're under stage lights. Make sure you're wearing undergarments. Anything can happen. Yep. Like this, And it's a family setting. Yes. It's a family competition. It should not be provocative. Yep. It should not be risque. We should not be wearing like garters. We should not like there's so many things that just go over people's heads because they've seen it on YouTube and it won. I truly believe that's why. And and instead of thinking, wow, these are 12 year olds, like, wow, these dancers probably they look confident. They're performing confident. Are they, though? Are they actually confident what they're wearing? And are you okay? Are we teaching them? Yes. Yes. Exactly. There's such a big discussion. And I think that appropriateness is huge. But then there will always be someone that says, well, X, Y, and Z won. Exactly. Well, that dance who did that that inappropriate song and had barely anything on won first overall. So obviously the judges don't feel that way. And people will always come back. And again, we will go back and say, like we say a million times, is that we truly, there's not a lot that we as judges can do in those moments because we have to judge what is presented in front of us. And yes, we can maybe do what Andrea said and say it on the mic and say, this song is not appropriate. This costume is a little too revealing. But usually there's not a score for costume anymore. They've eliminated mm-hmm. that. There's not mm-hmm. a score for choreography anymore. They've eliminated that. There's because, certainly not an appropriateness score yeah, in those places. So. And if there is, like, I've heard of scenarios where judges have specifically deducted for appropriateness and have spoke about it on the critique and then got complaints about it. So it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so like, we can't, we can't win. <laughs> there will, There is places that said don't, you know, there are. Some competitions that say don't mark down for music, don't those are, you know, considered the perfect part of the score. I, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I'm at the place in my career where I am going to stand up for that stuff. And I will take a little bit off if it's super inappropriate lyrics, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deduct a little bit. Right. And luckily, you know, for for us in this part of our all of our careers, like, I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to work for somebody who doesn't have my values. And if I find exactly. that I'm working for somebody that doesn't Agreed. have my values, I'm not working for them anymore because I have other things that I can do. We are all in demand. We are all, you know, at the point in our careers where we can choose. And so, you know, I, this isn't just a plug for doing your research as studio owners, as teachers. When you're going to a competition, well, do they advertise who their judges are or are they pulling somebody from the side of the road? Do, do, are they putting the bios somewhere? Read the bios. Because if you're getting a judge that's 21, 22, yeah, you might end up with a Courtney Ortiz who started at 21, 22 and actually was an amazing judge who had the same values that she has today. But somebody that young may not, may not have developed the values, may not have come from a place with those values. You just don't know. So, you know, you got to seek out the places that are going to, again, have your values. And if you don't share them, if you're going to a competition and risque dance number 52 is winning, talk to the competition. They have control of that. We don't have have control control of that. It is the owner of the competition who's making the rules. So, and it's up to the customer to say, we're not standing for this. We're not giving you our business anymore. Yeah. So, and that's the other thing. Yeah. Find a competition that seems to suit you and your values, not necessarily winning always, like where are we going to win the most, but what really matches with our vision? 
what matches like our school's kind of vision. The hard part is, is that you don't know until you get there. And I feel like a lot of competitions are like, oh, we absolutely care about appropriateness and we absolutely won't allow inappropriate music. And then you get there and it's exactly the opposite. And you're like, uh, you, you sold me on the whole appropriate thing. And <laughs> where is that being implemented? It's not. So I, I really encourage competitions. I hope they're listening to us. Like, I hope that they're listening to our podcast because we speak about this all the time. And I don't feel like that there's any change that could be happening in the industry until they start it. The studios from the top, the top of the studio, the studio owners need to make sure that they are monitoring what is getting presented under their studio's name at competitions and making sure it's appropriate on all levels, costume, song, theme, all of it. We've talked about it on many other episodes. The competitions need to implement, start enforcing rules, deduct points, penalize dancers, eliminate, like disqualify dancers. Like, I'm sorry. And I know that's bad for your business, but that's the only way things will change. And there's another studio that will come. Don't worry. <laughs> right. And I know everyone's like, well, that's not the dancer's fault. Right. But as we said, when, I, when I'm judging a routine, I'm not judging just a dancer. I'm judging everything involved in it. So I'm not trying to punish the dancer. I'm not, we're not trying to punish any. We're trying to use this as a learning experience to improve and to grow and all that. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I feel bad that the dancer may not win or score as best as they want, but this needs to be a learning experience. And I'll tell you why in my critiques that you can hopefully change it and fix it for the next time. Yep. You know, not everyone's a winner. And we've learned that today <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Because there's but, only but, a but handful also of winning. gave you the information to be a winner. So yes. take it. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of ingredients to what makes a winning dance. And we've talked all about that today on this week's episode. So thank you to our guests, Andrea and Jody, for joining us on this fabulous chat. It was so lovely uh, talking with y'all, having you on the podcast for the very first time. Can't wait to have you both back sooner than later. And for all of our listeners out there, I hope that this will help you prepare for the upcoming 2024 competition season. Maybe, you know, approach rehearsal different next time. Maybe tweak some of the ography that you've been drilling like crazy. Really uh, give a listen. And we can't wait to see your dances this season uh, at all of the different competitions around the country. To our guests, we always have y'all lead us out with one final thought on the topic. So anything that you'd like to share, you can speak to whoever you'd like. Parents studio owners, the competitions, ooh, other judges out there, choreographers, dancers, whoever you'd like to speak to with one final thought on what makes a winning routine. I think in general, approach it as just putting your best foot forward, literal and figuratively. Just just think about doing your best in that day, in that time. I, you can't think about the winning. The more you think about the winning, the less likely it probably will happen. Just really enjoy it. And that's advice for myself too. I am so not the person that enjoys the journey. I'm looking for the result, but I find the results are better if I just enjoy the whole process, enjoying the journey, putting my best foot forward. Yeah. I would say kind of going off from that, enjoying the chance to perform, right? And keeping your expectations real and just trying to self-improve from the last time you competed. Always trying to better yourself for just the sake of improving and growing as a dancer as an artist as a human and not just make winning the only focus that will come if all the other things start to come into place and you change your focus we hope you enjoyed our episode this week all about what makes a winning routine 
special shout out to our IDA judges who joined us on this episode. Don't forget to follow them on social media. You can find Jody on Instagram at otherblackguy and Andrea at Andrea M Tracy one. Don't forget to follow Making the Impact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want more exclusive episodes, support our podcast by joining our Platinum Premium membership for only $5 a month. Subscribers receive free Making the Impact stickers, shoutouts live on the air, ad-free listening, and exclusive access to our Q&A episodes for members only. Join now at impactdanceadjudicators.com slash platinum premium or click the link in our show notes. Be sure to check out IDA-affiliated competition, DECA Dance Competition. DECA Dance Competition is a celebration of artists and the families who love them. This experience was created not just for competitors, but to honor the educators, choreographers, studio owners, and parents who make the dance community what it is. Come experience the DECA difference. With a specialized four-judge panel, an exclusive distinctive scoring system with weighted technique scores, live judges' critiques, and the first fully sprung Omara dance floor in competition history. We invite you to join them at an event this season as they celebrate five years of DECA dance competition. Visit their website for a full list of upcoming convention and competition events in their 2024 season at decadancecompetition.com. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes, including how to teach movement quality, across the floor, and the ins and outs of being a swing. We'll see you next week. Until then, keep dancing.